0: Hello and welcome to the Ant Hill, a podcast from the Conversation, where we unearth new stories and research from the world of academia. I'm Will De Freitas. This episode is all about myths. How do we know that things we hold true aren't just myths that will be proved untrue in the future? Or well, maybe you have a favourite fact or story that's already been debunked, but no one has told you. Daddy Longlegs, for instance, don't actually have particularly strong venom, and no scientist really thinks bumblebees are too heavy to fly. The Great Wall of China isn't visible to the naked eye from the moon, and no, you cannot make LSD out of a particularly trippy banana skin. We've got three stories about researchers pouring cold water over ideas that many people still believe. We'll hear about where racial myths of white supremacy come from, and then we'll explore the history of urban legends, and why some of them left Victorian Londoners spooked. But first, I'm going on a trip to Polynesia. Easter Island is found in the Southern Pacific Ocean, and it's tiny. It's just a few miles across, and it's one of the most remote places on Earth. In fact, the nearest inhabited land, Pitcairn Island, is almost 1,300 miles away. That's about the distance from London to Morocco. The island is best known for its 900 or so massive stone statues of human heads, or moai, each one of which can weigh up to 90 tonnes. But in recent years, Easter Island has also become known as an apparent example of a society that destroyed itself. When Europeans first arrived, they allegedly found a small population badly nourished and constantly at war with each other. The island was treeless and its residents had no machinery or large animals. This was the great mystery of Easter Island. How, the Europeans wondered, could these people have ever created and moved such large statues? Evidence that the island was once covered in thick forest seemed to provide the answer. Here's how the story goes. The Polynesians who first settled there needed wood for shelter, for canoes, and to roll their moai into place. And so they gradually cleared the forest. Eventually, sometime in the 1600s, not too long before the Europeans arrived, They chopped down the last tree. With no trees, the islanders had no logs to carry the statues and no rope to erect them with. But more importantly, the most fertile soil eroded away and they couldn't build any more canoes to go fishing in or even ships to escape to another island. Easter Islanders had simply overexploited their resources and their society collapsed. This is known as the ecocide theory. It's an idea that's been around for a while, but it was really popularised by an American ecologist and geographer called Jared Diamond, particularly in his book Collapse, How Societies Choose to Fail or Survive, which was a big hit back in 2005. Diamond has gone on to discuss the idea in newspapers, podcasts, TED Talks, TV shows and more, and the Easter Islanders continue to get a bad rap. For instance, one video about them I found on YouTube was called Big Heads, small brains. Here's Diamond himself, speaking at the University of California in 2005. ...in the
1: class of any society, why they did these seemingly stupid things. My UCLA students phrased it by saying, what do you think the islander who cut down the last palm tree said as he was cutting down the last tree? It's a serious question. My students have come up with suggested answers. Maybe the island who did it said as he was chopping, never fear technology will solve our problems by discovering some substitute for wood. Or perhaps the Islander would say, was saying, respect my private property rights. This is my land and this is my tree. Keep the big government of the chiefs off my back. Or perhaps the Islander was saying, your ecological fears are overblown. Your environmental models and theories are untested. There is no evidence that we are facing a resource crisis. There may be some more trees over there in the next valley.
0: This ecocide theory proves so popular in part because it has an obvious message for humanity at large and our unsustainable living. Just as the Easter Islanders had nowhere to go, so too humans have no other planets to escape to. Are we close to chopping down that last tree on the only planet we know? Are humans today repeating the same catastrophic mistakes as the Easter Islanders? It's a nice story. But, unfortunately, it's a myth. Kat Jarman is an archaeologist at the University of Bristol. She's one of many researchers whose work is showing the Easter Islanders in a different light. I started by asking her where the myth came from. Was it Jared Diamond's idea?
2: It's based on uh, various other researchers, actually, and and one of them being Tuhaiadal, who is the explorer and anthropologist who's probably most famous for sailing the Kontiki raft uh, across from South America to Polynesia. Uh, he also led several expeditions to Easter Island and carried out some archaeological research there. And um, it's also based on some of the oral histories and and the. Um, stories told by the native population to early um, Europeans who arrived there uh, about warfare, about uh, things that happened on the island before the Europeans arrived and so really uh, Heyerdahl thought that this was caused by warfare, caused by a collapse. Uh, and then Jared Diamond, I think, really popularised that theory. And he was the one, I think, who also took it a bit further, saying that this is a demonstration of what can happen to society, what can happen to us if we don't look after our environment.
0: But uh, what, what we're sort of finding is that work by yourselves and other archaeologists on Easter Island is telling quite a different story.
2: Yeah, that's right. So really, I think it's the combination of all the new research, all the, the quite advanced research that's been happening on Easter Island in the last 10, 20 years, and unravelling this theories of the, of the collapse and the ecocide. Uh, we've realised that actually that theory doesn't really stack up on the, and the evidence is showing quite a different uh, side of the island and of the island's history. And so we do know that the the it was forested uh, originally. There were some very large palm trees growing uh, on the island, and uh, uh, they it was deforested. And some of that would have been uh, caused by the the local people cutting down trees, certainly. But um, they don't seem to be entirely to blame for the uh, ecological disaster. We. Also now I think that um, actually was partially caused by the rats that arrived with some of the earliest colonisers, and um, this has been seen in archaeological evidence of palm nuts that have been eaten have little gnaw marks from from rats, and uh, comparing this to other islands like Hawaii, for example, it's um, shown that actually rats not only eat the palm nuts that are needed, obviously, for the forest to uh, regenerate, but also eat the little seedlings uh, that that have just sprouted and come up. So if you have the combination of, of trees being cut down uh, by humans and a lot of rats stopping them from regenerating, then quite quickly it can become deforested. But it wasn't all uh, the humans' fault.
0: I mean, what, what's the latest evidence, say, the timeframes for both humans arriving on the island and... Then the sort of trees disappearing.
2: So we don't quite know when the trees disappeared uh, in terms of when people first arrived. Originally, it was thought it was quite early, so sort of 600 to 900 AD. But the latest evidence is showing it was probably more like 1100 to 1200 AD, so quite a lot later. And it is thought that the deforestation probably happened relatively quickly, um, but we don't, uh, to my knowledge, have a, a specific date for it.
0: So uh, how, how did the statues tie into this then? As I understand it, the ecocide idea relied on the islanders using wooden logs to sort of roll the statues into place, kind of Stonehenge style. Um, but does this mean deforestation actually happened many centuries before they stopped erecting the statues?
2: Yeah so that, that was one of the early theories for how uh, the statues were moved and actually also recent, more recent research uh, is suggesting that that's not how they move them at all and and actually it's not really the, the most sensible way of moving big statues like that and instead it's been shown that they were probably essentially walked uh, by rocking them from side to side using just ropes uh, pulling at, at two different sides and letting the statues kind of rock and walk uh, along and you can move them uh, relatively easily actually with that process so, so it really doesn't seem like they needed uh, trees at all to move the statues so that sort of uh, argument uh, can go out through the window but the other thing that uh, is suggested is that without uh, these huge trees they couldn't make uh, canoes and without canoes you can't go fishing and if you can't go fishing, then a big food resource, when you live on a tiny island, is suddenly gone. So that, again, was suggested as a sort of consequence of deforestation.
0: But, but you've done some research saying actually actually, fish was still fairly common?
2: Yeah, so that was one of the things that I wanted to look into when I started researching uh, East Rhylam. So I'm a bioarchaeologist, which means that I study evidence from bones and from human remains. And we wanted to look at whether the population really didn't eat a lot of fish, because if they didn't, like... um, then that might have put a lot of pressure on other resources and on the land-based terrestrial resources because you'd have to feed the entire population on whatever you could grow or or animals. And they really didn't have that many other resources. There were no large animals to eat. You really only had the chicken and and the rats and whatever you could plant. So the methods I use look at the chemical makeup of our bones because we really are what we eat. We we actually incorporate... uh, Evidence or the sort of diets we have uh, every time we eat or or drink something and so one of the things we can do is look at something called stable isotope evidence, which uh, stores a sort of signal of what proportions of say uh, fish uh, versus other terrestrial foods uh, you have eaten so If you're a vegetarian, for example, then your bones and your hair and your skin will have a very different signature from if you are uh, a sort of heavy meat eater or somebody who um, eats a lot of fish, for example. And what's really amazing for uh, archaeologists is that those traces, those sort of signatures in bones actually remain in the bones even when they've been buried for a thousand of years um, underground. So we can take samples uh, of either animal or human bone we can analyse them in the lab and get an idea of what sort of proportion of uh, fish or terrestrial foods you've eaten.
0: OK, and so back to the East Island example, you can kind of tell then from, from this sort of analysis that they had a more sophisticated diet than uh, would fit in with the, you know, sort of the idea that they chopped down the trees and they were all sort of saying kind of woe is me until the sort of present day.
2: Yeah, so we we could do a number of things. So one of them was just really just looking at how much fish they ate. So if they couldn't go fishing, if they turned their back on the sea, then they should have a, a very low proportion. Uh, but we found that about half the half the protein in these people's um, uh, diets came from the sea. So about half of their food uh, was marine food, and we then analysed some soils as well for where people had been planting uh, crops and we found that that's, those crops and those soils had been very carefully manipulated to make them better for growing uh, and then producing quite a good food supply.
0: So even despite the fact this island had gone from being quite lush and forested to being considerably more barren, they'd still maintained agricultural civilization.
2: Yeah, so it seemed like they had very good techniques, agricultural techniques that were very suited to that kind of environment. It's a very difficult environment, as you suggest, and uh, we know from other archaeological evidence they have planting enclosures that were used. But we could also now show that the soils inside those enclosures were very different from outside, and we think they used fertilisers and other methods for really improving those soils so that they could really get good crop yields and actually live quite sustainably uh, despite having cut down the trees that didn't necessarily need to have a, a big impact on the food supply.
0: So it's actually, in this telling, it's, it's a much more positive story of adaptation to kind of fairly tough circumstances to be yeah. you know, to, for humans to find themselves on a quite small island but coming up with some pretty ingenious ways to still maintain and sustain their population Um, yeah
2: exactly and i think also some of this comes from the early europeans uh, reports when they first arrived at the islands they they thought it seemed completely desolate and devastated and uh and very poor and impoverished and by european standards it probably was but uh that doesn't mean that the the society and the people who, who lived there at the time um thought the same but actually they they probably were far, far better adapted to it than they were given credit for.
0: And I, I believe the population did, did decline quite a bit following European contact. What are the reasons for that?
2: Yeah, so the, the island really did have a population collapse, but it was from quite a different reason. And we do have a lot of historical sources to explain that. And unfortunately, it's mainly to do with slave trade, uh, especially in the 19th century, they were quite... Uh, severe slave raids from Peru in the 1860s and until the 1880s. And disease was also brought in, smallpox and tuberculosis, for example, uh, so that the remaining population in the 19th century uh, was almost obliterated. And what that actually led to was in 1877, only 110 people remained on the island. So going from a population probably of several thousand down to 110 in the 19th century. And that's really the the real collapse uh, of Easter Island.
0: That was Kat Jarman at the University of Bristol, sticking up for the Easter Islanders. So while our overuse of the planet's natural resources may be all too real, The idea that these unfortunate islanders are some sort of parable for global environmental suicide is a myth. Their ultimate population collapse turns out to be caused not by ecocide, but by disease and slavery. (laughs) Slavery is also central to our next myth. The transatlantic slave trade played a crucial role in the way that ideas of race developed the way they did. These, in turn, underpin a number of myths upon which white supremacists have built their identities. Ant Hill producer Annabelle Bly investigates. There was a very strong
3: movement within Nazi Germany to use scientific evidence to support its expansionist ideals. And so you see a number of, of archaeologists become quite prominent, even to the point of becoming officers in the Waffen-SS to construct excavations to acquire artefacts and and appropriate them into, into Nazi ideals. So material culture excavation has always been used as a way to bolster ideas of nationhood and identity. It was very much part of the Nazi propaganda machine.
4: That's Duncan Sayer. He's an archaeologist at the University of Central Lancashire, and is involved in research that debunks some of the myths that both Nazi and present-day alt-right movements have built their identity on.
3: This obsession by the alt-right with Anglo-Saxon and Viking identity, I think is, is related to um, the sort of 1930s, 1940s German perspective. So they're drawing very directly off that idea of an Aryan race that was put forward as part of the the expansion of the Third Reich.
4: Though the science has long since been rejected, the idea of polygenism, that's this idea of categorising humans into different racial categories or species, was commonplace in the early 20th century. It had deep roots, many of which persist to this day in some people's thinking. We're going to hear more from Duncan later on, but first I wanted to explore where this idea of polygenism came from. So I spoke to Ornette Clennon, who co leads Manchester Metropolitan University's Critical Race and Ethnicity Research Group.
5: This became quite popular in the 18th century with Voltaire and David Hume and the English travel writer Edward Long, who was sort of quite famous for these categorisations. And then this developed and deepened into what was called scientific racism. And the main proponent for that was a French zoologist called um, Georges Cuvier, who actually categorised human beings into three distinct species or races. So he called white Caucasian, yellow Mongolian, and black Ethiopian. And this was key at the time because... These were species um, fixed in their boundaries of how they looked and their supposed mental and emotional capabilities. And it wasn't until the 60s, actually, that um, scientific racism actually died its death. But it took all that time for it to, to disappear.
4: Scientific racism is now totally discredited as a pseudoscience. But it was used to justify the horrors of slavery and colonialism. This is how the very concept of race was constructed.
5: If society needs to justify enslaving um, different people in order to make a profit from them, it needs to somehow um, find a distinguishing characteristic that justifies the need to dehumanise them. And often that's race. And interestingly... During the time of slavery, when you had the systematic, there isn't really a better word than rape, really, of the slave women by the slave masters, you had lots of children who were the offspring of these illegal unions, and they had different shades of colour. So you had people who could so-called pass for being white, because they were quite fair-skinned. But because of their African ancestry, and because of the whole the American concept of the one drop rule where any drop of so-called African blood makes you black, which again, that's a social construct that decided that they weren't considered black, they were considered white until they were found out. So the whole idea of passing shows the um, fluidity of so-called race based on physical characteristics. And that fluidity is constructed by um, society.
4: We might think that the world has moved on from all of this, but Ornette points out that there's a hangover in thinking from this period, in the US from slavery and in Europe from colonialism.
5: If we look at um, liberalism, um, where, say, um, philosophers like John Locke, 17th century um, philosopher, Um, really rejected the whole idea of the divine right of kings and hereditary laws, and he advocated um, the natural right of people to life, liberty, and property. And these liberal values are the founding values of our our present systems and and our um, democratic worldviews. But the interesting thing to think about is, well... Whose right is it? Because obviously back in the 17th century when John Locke was saying it was the natural right of common man to life, liberty and property, in the context of the transatlantic slave trade, it wasn't obviously the natural right for everybody. It wasn't a universal concept.
4: History and context informs everything. The way we talk about race today might be very different to the way they did in the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries. But we do talk about culture and ethnicities in a way that echoes this past, particularly our tendency to categorise culture depending on how civilised or westernised we deem it.
5: I suppose what I'm trying to say is that there will always be echoes of the scientific racist ideas permeating through our system because our system was built on those very ideas. So until we have a, a, an absolutely brand new system that wasn't built on liberalism or capitalism and um, wasn't built on the profits and the philosophies of the slave trade, we'll always have echoes of that thinking coming through the system. So that's why it's really, really hard to eradicate, because the system's actually built on those values.
4: For Ornette, the connection between capitalism and racism is an important one. It helps you understand not only why myths about racial superiority persist today, but the rise of neo-Nazi alt-right groups in recent years.
5: So certain privileges held by certain parts of society have had to be dispensed with in order to build a more equal society. And obviously, there are elements of society who are quite upset that some of their privileges are being lost. So rather than seeing it as a leveling of of the playing field, they're seeing it as a direct attack or diminishing of their, their status. So I think it is just a backlash of of progress, really. And, I mean, it's really not helped by the fact that in our neoliberal paradigm, the poor have grown poorer as the rich have grown richer. And so the socioeconomic dimension to it actually, if you will, in terms of the market, has encompassed more people. So you have the poor whites, if you will, who are also suffering from the unfairness of the system. And when they're seeing social progress being made in terms of civil rights and civil liberties, whilst they're still remaining in their abject poverty, that can fuel resentment. So it's really about an economic system that is failing far too many people.
4: At a rally of white nationalists in Charlottesville, Virginia, in August, at the time they were protesting the removal of Confederate statues, the chants included, You Will Not Replace Us, and an old Nazi slogan that advocated racial purity, blood and, soil. Blood, and soil! Blood, and soil! Blood and Soil. The rally also had a medieval vibe to it, things like torch bearing and shield toting. This appropriation of faux-medieval culture is a common trope among white nationalist movements. It is born out of a nostalgia for a pure white Europe of old. But this too is a myth. As an expert in the medieval period, Duncan Sayer says the research is clear. Medieval Europe was diverse, culturally, religiously and ethnically. A recent archaeological dig that he took part in excavated an early Anglo-Saxon cemetery in Cambridgeshire to find out more about how the Anglo-Saxon immigrants to Britain at the time mixed with the then Iron Age natives.
3: The biological scientists, the geneticists, were very interested in trying to identify immigrant Anglo-Saxons. And we were sort of interested in looking at uh, the sort of biological versus material, cultural or burial practice intersections, see if you can see differences or similarities.
4: The findings were stark.
3: Now, of the four individuals that we we sequenced the full genomic data from, from the Anglo-Saxon Cemetery, two of them were closest to modern Dutch genomes. One of them was closest to an Iron Age sample that had also been sequenced at the same time. And one of them was a hybrid of the two. But very importantly, their material culture, burial positions, and places within the cemetery were extremely similar. There's very little difference.
4: So the evidence points to an integrated people of mixed ancestry who lived side by side. Today's concept of Anglo-Saxon identity was created and perpetuated much more recently for political purposes.
3: Certainly nobody who was migrating into Britain in the fifth, sixth or seventh centuries would have considered themselves to be an Anglo-Saxon. It's something that we've invented much later in our history to, to look back at history and try and make sense of it. And where they become a particular romantic people associated with origin myths is, is around the 19th century, um, and that's where you see the translation of Beowulf and all the Anglo-Saxon poems like Seafarer and The Wanderer. And I think you know, it's certainly connected very much with Queen Victoria and with, with Albert, Saxe-Coburg and Gotha, who of course are trying to draw parallels between their own Germanic heritage and that of their subjects, so they don't appear to be quite so different uh, and distant. They're not other, but they are part of the same family, if you like.
4: The Victorians did this in a number of ways to build English identity at the time around Victoria and Albert. The monarchy's Anglo-Saxon heritage was then downplayed during the two world wars with Germany, but it was embedded in the roots of what it meant to be English, and has been resurrected in recent years by a number of white nationalists. When combined with the legacies of pseudo-scientific racism, this has made for a powerful and persistent modern-day myth of a time when race was pure, despite the clear evidence that white Britons and Americans are not descended from one group of people, but from many.
0: Annabel Blay there, one of the producers of The Ant Hill. Now, if you're looking for a new podcast this festive season, look no further than our new podcast, In-Depth Out Loud. Every fortnight we'll release an audio version of one of the Conversations In-Depth articles written by an academic expert. In the latest episode, Mark Robert Anderson from Edge Hill University tells us the story of what happened after that infamous chess game 20 years ago in New York and how it sparked a big data revolution. Here's a taster. This was no ordinary game of chess. It's not uncommon for a defeated player to accuse their opponent of cheating, but in this case the loser was the then world chess champion, Gary Kasparov. The victor was even more unusual. IBM supercomputer Deep Blue. That's In-Depth Out Loud from The Conversation. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from or listen at theconversation.com. Now, back to the myths. Clearly, myths and legends can have a strong hold over the public imagination, blurring the line between reality and fantasy. But perhaps none more so than urban legends, those spine-tingling horror stories which always seem to happen to a friend of a friend of a friend. Our City's editor, Emily Brown, delved into the history of one such urban legend to find out where it came from. (sighs)
6: On the 22nd of February, 1838, the Morning Chronicle ran a story about a woman's encounter with a horrifying figure called spring Jack. Miss Jane Allsop stated that, at about quarter to nine o'clock that night, she heard a violent ringing at the gate in front of her house. And when she went to answer, she saw a man standing outside. She asked what was the matter, and the person replied that he was a policeman, and said, ''For God's sake, bring me a light, for we have caught spring Jack here in the lane.'' She returned into the house and brought a candle and handed it to the person, who appeared enveloped in a large cloak. The instant she had done so, however, he threw off his outer garment and applied the lighted candle to his breast, presented a most hideous and frightful appearance, and vomited forth a quantity of blue and white flame from his mouth. From the hasty glance which Miss Allsop managed to catch of his person, she observed that he wore a large helmet, that his eyes resembled red balls of fire, and his dress, which appeared to fit him very tight, resembled white oilskin. Without a word, he caught her by her dress in the back part of her neck, placed her hand under one of his, and tore at her gown with his claws, which she was certain were of some metallic substance. She screamed out as loud as she could for assistance, and by considerable exertion got away from him and ran towards the house to escape. Imagine reading that in your evening paper, then having to walk home alone through the dark, narrow streets of Victorian London. Stories about the terrifying figure of spring Jack plagued Britain for years. New accounts frequently popped up in newspapers, police reports, and society gossip. It was the stuff of urban legend. To find out why, I interviewed Carl Bell, reader in cultural history at the University of Portsmouth. Hello, Carl. Hello. So... Can you tell us what sets urban legends like Springhill Jack apart from myths or conspiracy theories?
7: Yes, urban legends straddle a strange place between reality and fiction. Uh, Myths are very much assumed to be kind of fictional understandings of our worldview about why things are created, why things exist. And legends have more of a a foothold in um, history. Often they have an air of supernatural or something strange about them but they don't have that same kind of grand scale as myth.
6: Right and Spring Hill Jack definitely treads that line between fantasy and reality doesn't he?
7: Yes uh, I mean he, he exists in the newspapers he is reported as uh, an attacker a very strange attacker um, when he first appears in late 1837 1838 so just, just as Queen Victoria comes to the throne these strange accounts start to appear of this character who, he starts off as a ghost, and and yet he he gradually morphs and evolves into something far more substantial um, as as these accounts track in from South London and towards the center of the city. Uh, He he transforms in these rumors and in these stories and in the press into a demon or a beast. There's, There's many different interpretations of what this creature is. And he has this kind of Supernatural heir to him. So, although he's being reported as a historical reality or as a, a contemporary reality at this time, he is also being portrayed as a supernatural character.
6: And can you tell us a little bit more about how the legend of Spring Hill Jack evolved and, and how the stories of him changed over time?
7: Yeah, sure. The, the stories begin around Barnes Common in sort of the autumn of 1837, and there are accounts of uh, women being harassed or being attacked by a white bull, uh, but a ghostly bull. And then as the stories move from village to village, he, he becomes uh, described as a white bear. And then as you get into sort of places like Hampton Court where he's seen, he's dressed in armor and, and has kind of uh, clawed gloves and the, these kind of boots that then start to evolve into this legend of, of his spring heels. And for a while, these kind of armored spring heel jacks start to appear around the city. And then it changes into uh, there's accounts of fire breathing. Uh, he has the ability to, to kind of create fireballs and, and he has claws. And so he becomes more of a, a sort of a demonic figure than uh, a ghost. He, he very quickly evolves by uh, January 1838 into this kind of more um, individualized character, I think. He, he moves around, so he's not like a normal ghost. He doesn't haunt one place. He's popping up all around London. And it's creating rumor in all these different neighborhoods.
6: You mentioned that, you know, he was vicious and violent and and attacked women in in Mm. these kind of early incarnations. But that changed a a little bit later on, didn't it?
7: That's right. I mean, very early on, he he is a very vicious character. But as time goes on, once he leaves London and starts moving around the provinces, the, the, the claws disappear, the fire breathing disappear, and he becomes more of a prankster. Uh, just content to kind of leap out and scare people and then, and then leap away. And then he also develops a kind of a second life in fiction. In the 1860s, there are plays about him in, on the London stage, and then there are uh, several series of penny dreadfuls in the 1860s and 1870s, which starts to change his character. They start to reread the events of his attacks in 1837-38, not as a, uh, as a kind of vicious predator as he was presented in the newspapers, but more as a kind of a, a vigilante, somebody who's very much a man, but dressed up in costume, sort of like a Batman figure. He then starts defending the weak, fighting for the cause of the poor, uh, against sort of blackmailers and, and various other kind of uh, dubious criminals.
6: Amazing, quite a transformation. Um, what do urban legends like Spring Hill Jack reveal about society at their time? They seem to kind of tap into some fairly substantial fears.
7: Yes, I mean, I think the timing is interesting in that he is clearly a very potent and powerful combination of kind of older folkloric ideas of the demon and the devil and, and the sort of the vengeful spirit in some ways, mixing with very contemporary concerns about living in a growing uh, urban environment in which all of the kind of anxieties that come with that are, are kind of first being experienced. You know, this is the first couple of generations to go through urbanization of this scale, obviously there's always been cities, but the size of Victorian London and the way in which it continues to expand rapidly through the 19th century, it really creates, I think, this kind of socio-psychological unease about anonymity, about who the people are around you. And I think it's Springhill Jack it becomes kind of a projection of that. He could potentially be anywhere. It's the sense of possible threat, not actual threat, but possible threat. Uh, within an urban environment.
6: And how do you think the telling of urban legends has changed since the times of Springhill Jack?
7: I mean, I think obviously you have to sort of factor in social media. So what you get now is that kind of global and quite diffused oral community. And so these ideas, they don't have to necessarily start in one place. They can be kind of multi-locational and they can be adapted and adopted around the world very quickly in different places. So I think Slenderman is a good example of the way in which uh, a legend can be very quickly appropriated by, by a community, uh, an online community. So it doesn't need to be fixed to an American city or it doesn't need to be fixed to America. That is something that, you know, it, it has, it's got legs, it can move around. You know, it's, it, it's a legend that other people can kind of then start appropriating themselves. And I think there's quite a lot of that as kind of the idea of sort of a meme. And I think Spring Hill Jack works as very much an early Victorian meme, of sort of ideas that just kind of start to circulate around these broader connected cultures. So I think there are interesting ways in which these legends are actually given greater freedom through social media than they would have had when they had to develop in a rather plodding way from somebody telling somebody and then the newspapers picking up on it as they did with Spring Hill Jack. If anything, these legends, they'll probably generate faster and probably distribute themselves faster.
6: Okay, thank you so much for your time, Carl.
0: Okay. Thank you. That was Emily Brown, our city's editor, talking to Carl Bell at the University of Portsmouth. If you're interested in hearing more about conspiracy theories, do scroll back through our podcast feed to episode seven of the Ant Hill on Belief. I had a chat with psychologist Stephen Lewandowski about the best way to talk somebody out of their beliefs in conspiracy theories that's it for this episode of the Ant Hill. a big thanks as ever to the journalism department here at city university for letting us use their studios this episode of the Ant Hill was produced by Gemma ware and annabelle Bly. if you enjoy this podcast please share the love with your friends and even give us a review online that would make our christmas and before we go here's a short message from my colleague sinanda cray over at the conversation australia about their new podcast
5: trust me
6: i'm like a smart person If you like The
4: Ant Hill, you'll love Trust Me, I'm an Expert, a new podcast from The Conversation Australia, where we ask academic experts to shed some light on the topics that they know in and out. And our January episode is all about risk. Things like, how do you really calculate the risk of a behaviour that you know is not really great for you, but doesn't seem to have any consequences at the time?
3: Just watching television on your couch, every 60 minutes that you do that, takes off a half a micro life. So that costs you 15 minutes of your lifespan.
4: I knew I shouldn't have watched so much Game of Thrones. Find us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on Pocket Casts and listen to us online at theconversation.com.
0: Bonza. Now, if you can't wait till January, do sign up to The Conversation's free newsletter to get a daily dose of news analysis and opinion from experts in their field. But for now, thanks for listening in. Goodbye.